the rise of the risk-based approach in AML reflects a general evolution in financial regulation that frankly incorporates firms' corporate governance systems actually within a regulatory framework. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode, and you're in for an Uber treat today because I'm in for an Uber treat. I have Professor Alexander Dill, who has recently published a book entitled Anti-Money Laundering Regulation and Compliance, Key Problems and Practice Areas. So, Professor Dill, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. And thank you for the invitation. So, could you tell us your professional background? Yeah, so I was trained as a lawyer. I worked in a number of different areas. I guess you could say I'd like a diverse experience. So I a clerk for a federal district judge. Then I moved on to some Wall Street firms. The law firm experience didn't agree that much with me. So then I went to the government at the SEC for six years in trading and markets. And then my longest period was at Moody's Investor Services, which is a bond rating agency, as many people know. And then from there, I went into academics. I'm sure I'll talk a little bit more about that. So many of the listeners of this podcast are in compliance, and they're in a wide variety of compliance roles. So it could be anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance. It could be financial compliance. It could be more general risk management. So I wanted to start off with asking you, with a variety of roles you've had in the financial industry, how did that lead to an interest in financial compliance? Very good question. It was kind of a long road, but along the way, I did various things in compliance. And I'll just be a little specific about that. So first of all, I would say that I am in financial institution compliance. So for over 30 years, I've been involved in the finance industry. So I have that kind of context to work with, and I think it's actually pretty important. At one point, I was a credit rating analyst, but so I know about the the capital markets and that sort of thing. But the hardcore sort of compliance was I started at the SEC. Since I was in trading and markets, it specializes in broker-dealer compliance, and that kind of is a logical road for a lot of ex-market reg people to go into compliance. And In fact, many of my former colleagues are now compliance chiefs at, you know, the large banks. So I joined Moody's from the SEC. I was fascinated by credit rating agencies and their role in the capital markets. And again, you know, I learned a lot about the financial markets there. My specific compliance experience at Moody's involved designing and implementing a ratings compliance system at Moody's. And that combined with my six years of experience at the SEC gives me a certain amount of credibility to dig into various areas of financial regulation and compliance. So that's what I've done. I mean, just mentioned, I also wrote a book. My first book was on bank regulation, risk management and compliance. But getting back to your question, I left the business world in 2015 and joined Chicago Kent College of Law where I was a director of its online certificate compliance program. So I did that for about two years. I also designed several of their modules. But also when I was at Chicago Kent, I taught a capstone course 
on financial institution compliance. I also teach that at the UCLA School of Law. That capstone course is part of Chicago Kent's certificate program for people actually getting the JD at Chicago Kent in compliance and financial institutions. Then finally, I teach along similar lines at University of Chicago and the Anderson School at UCLA. So that kind of is a nutshell of what I try to bring to the table. Let me pick up on a couple of points you raised in there, Professor Dill. First of all, when you were at Moody's, you mentioned creating a first-of-its-kind compliance, ratings compliance system. And I was a professional in Houston for a large part of my career. And Enron is always on front of my mind around many compliance issues. But I wanted to ask, why was such a system needed after Enron and WorldCom? And then could you describe that system you helped create a little bit? Absolutely. So in a word, very poor ratings performance. So as you know, Moody's, S&P, and the other rating agencies are for-profit businesses. So they make a profit from the ratings, but they need to attract investors. And if they attract investors, they get issuers to buy the ratings, which creates a conflict, which I'll talk a little bit in a, a bit. But specifically, Enron filed for bankruptcy on December 2nd, 2001. And guess what? We had investment-grade ratings even on November 28, 2001. So, you know, and this sort of multi-notch downgrade, of course, we uh, put it to junk status, eventually withdrew the rating. But it was also for WorldCom, Tyco. As you know, this was in the context of uh, industry-wide accounting scandals. And so Moody's argued that, you know, the other rating agencies too, we don't rate for fraud. You know, that's the accountant's problem. But that didn't get them very far. Multi-notch downgrades you don't want to see. They made a huge dent in Moody's reputation. And it really called into question its competence in ratings accuracy. It was criticized for slow, reactive downgrades. That's been a general criticism of credit rating agencies in general. I'd just like to talk a little bit about the business model for ratings. Moody's rates through the business cycle. So they're not going to downgrade to junk status just because of one or two events. However, with a very sharp kind of binary event like a potential bankruptcy filing, maybe they should have seen it coming. In any case, they were criticized heavily for that. So, you know, why did Moody's create a compliance system for ratings, integrity, and accuracy? Simply, you know, the global regulators threatened to regulate their credit rating agencies extensively. The Europeans, IASCO, that's the International Organization of Securities Commissioners, and the SEC, they are all sort of on their back, the back of the uh, rating agencies. So Moody's wanted to be very proactive. And they wanted to continue to self-regulate. Actually, the CEO, his task was to interface with the regulators. Uh, He headed up regulatory affairs in, in addition to being the CEO. So our initial work in compliance, I would say, laid the foundation. We were actually not really regulated to any serious extent until the financial crisis and Dodd-Frank. But I would say the work we did laid the foundation for compliance when it became heavily regulated after Dodd-Frank. 
Well, let me just spell out a little bit more if I'm sort of being long-winded, cut me short. But I just want to just talk a little bit more about the conflict here. You know, bond ratings are a big business, especially like for derivatives. You could get a million dollars per transaction. You also earn monitoring fees, but the real money is in new bond issues when they go out the door. So the market asked, you know, why were credit rating agencies acting so slowly? Was it so they wouldn't harm their relationship with the issuers? So this is the issuer pays model. The issuer pays for ratings. Imagine, you know, the Wall Street Journal getting paid by somebody that's interviewing. Not a great idea. Somebody drinking the Kool-Aid is a good thing. So there's a lot of things that kind of fed into this design of a ratings compliance system that I was involved in. The rating agencies fight for market share in a ratings business. There's the big three, there's S&P, Moody's, and Fitch. And it is actually pretty competitive because you only really need one or two ratings per deal. So market share is a big concern. And that exacerbates the conflict. And that plays out in the ratings committees. And that's where we as compliance officers focused our attention. The managing director manages both the business, you know, market share, as well as ratings analytics. That's really a divided play. It's hard to, you know, sort of understand how they keep ratings analytics and, and with integrity while trying to chase market share. So that's what we did. We created process, policies and procedures, controls to manage that conflict of interest. So we tried to um, make it sure that you'd bring other people in the rating committee from other franchises, not just the like the energy team rating at Dynergy and Enron and so on. So and then, of course, splitting up the task of the chair of the rating committee from the management of the business. So that was very important. The process was the key thing here. So we, we interviewed over 100 people from data entry to the CEO and worked closely with internal audit. So it was a very satisfying experience, my first really good exposure to compliance. So I am a professor's kid, and my father went back to academia in his late 30s and got his PhD, and then he finished his career in academia. So I'm always intrigued by people who move into academia after a professional career in business or law. So I wanted to maybe ask you a little bit about why the move and what have you enjoyed about being in academia as opposed to in the business world? If I had to choose one topic, it would be corporate governance. I kind of really uh, glommed onto it. It's, it's fascinating. But just to back up, as I said, I began at Chicago, Kent, and so on. I taught securities regulation, business organization, of course, a compliance course. As a practicing attorney, I also had a strong preference for corporate finance over litigation. I had actually been a litigation paralegal, for example, on the Ford Pinto case years ago. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But Very familiar. <laughs> yeah. And so we spent time in Detroit and Elkhart, Indiana, where there was a negligent homicide case against Ford Motor Company. And they hired this trial attorney, Jim Neal from Tennessee. And he just you know, every, the big Wall Street firm was behind them, but he was the face of Ford Motor and he got it acquitted. So that was an experience, but I had to handle thousands of documents. And that, was, that kind of turned me off of litigation, corporate finance 
and then via that through compliance. I also enjoy writing and teaching both of them enormously. I see a synergy between the two. Writing helps with the teaching and vice versa. And finally, I just learned so much from my students. So that's why I enjoy teaching so much. Well, I'm a recovering trial lawyer, so believe me, I understand. And actually, I remember that trial, and I remember James Neal in that trial as well. I think he came out of the Carter administration, if I recall correctly. Now let's move to your book, Anti-Money Laundering Regulation and Compliance. And I will have to say that the first thing that struck me was the title. And certainly there are books that talk about the law, that talk about the regs, that talk about the statutes. But I was more intrigued with the compliance. So I wanted to start off with, why did you write the book? And really, who's your target audience? Well, it was sort of fortuitous to begin with. I began working with University of Chicago law professor on a separate project involving compliance, as well as with a co-author practitioner. But, you know, that didn't really get off the ground. But that kind of led to my writing a book on compliance. So I had two publishers, this, you know, for my first book on bank regulation and risk management compliance. Uh, so I had Rutledge, then I had El Edward Elgar. And I chose Rutledge for the first book, but then Elgar suggested, why don't you write on another compliance topic, AML? So I took them off up on it. And I signed uh, two book contracts within a month, which I wish I had not done because I did one book after another. I was exhausted. I took a couple of weeks off and I started working on the AML book. And it, frankly, I had to get extensions of the deadline several times. Who's my target audience? It may sound sort of contradictory, but it's both practitioners who are seasoned and beginning as well as students. So I've learned from my teaching and my work experience how to engage with practitioners. I believe I know how to speak their language. I, you know, I was a practitioner for over 30 years, and I also try very hard to explain concepts clearly. And, you know, that's what I did at Moody's. I wrote lots of special comments for the investors. So I had a lot of experience with that. So the AML book, I kind of characterize it as a comprehensive guide, but it also explains things on an elementary level. I've used all the FATF guides, the FinCEN, OFAC rules and rule releases. By the way, I think rule releases really are important to dig into to understand what the compliance expectations are of the agencies and of FinCEN. I was actually, I had the right rule releases when I was at the SEC. So, you know, what I tried to do with this book is combine the regulatory obligations and expectations with the compliance systems, because I think you can't really separate the two. Hopefully, I don't have too many footnotes citing all the regs, but that itself, I think, is a reference tool for practitioners and students. Could you explain for our audience the regulators in this area, the either government agencies or even departments, and how they might overlap and or interact? Yeah, exactly. So the chief one is uh, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. It's now a bureau of the Treasury Department. It has the primary rulemaking authority under the Bank Secrecy Act, but it delegates supervisory and examination authority to other agencies, and that 
is in the capital markets, it's the SEC, the CFTC, and even to the SROs, FINRA, the National Futures Association, as well as the banking agencies, the three major banking agencies. But I think as you alluded in your question, that can present a conflict of interest. I mean a conflict of regulatory objectives. So as you know, the banking agencies focus on safety and soundness. The law enforcement authorities spearheaded by FinCEN focus on the law enforcement objective. So those don't always come together in a uniform manner. So it's the job of FinCEN to corral the different agencies and make sure that there's kind of a single message. The most important thing is the law enforcement objective to create actionable suspicious activity reports and other reports that the criminal investigators can use. Just more generally, FinCEN also serves as the U.S.'s financial intelligence unit. It's a FATF concept. That's a central agency responsible for collecting, analyzing, and disseminating to the other regulators and law enforcement authorities information on illicit funds in the financial system. It also receives the SARS electronically and publishes on emerging typologies. Then finally, I'll just mention they are very important, and we see this in the latest 2020 AML Act, of building global cooperation with counterparties in the foreign countries and international bodies. So that information sharing is very important. I was wondering if you could tell us what is the OFAC framework for assessing AML and terror financing, and how can that be used by the compliance practitioner? Sure. Yeah, I do go into this into my book. There is a prehistory. So in 2019, the most important document for your audience to look at, I think, if they're into sanction screening, is the 2019 OFAC compliance guidelines for a sanctions compliance program. But OFAC did a number of things before that. It's important to note, actually, compliance program is not mandated by OFAC, by its regulations, unlike the Bank Secrecy Act. But regardless, uh, the firms out there really need to do a compliance program for OFAC, and they do. So OFAC published enforcement matrix credits in 2009, and that follows the U.S. sentencing guidelines and the DOJ manual quite closely in terms of giving penalty discounts if the firm self-reports and cooperates with the government. But what I really focused on is the risk-based compliance program that OFAC really focuses on. So just briefly, I'll just mention a, a little couple points about the 2019 document. It has five key components. Number one, management commitment, tone at the top, resources, full integration of programs into the daily operations, risk assessments. Secondly, you want to uh, determine the amount of due diligence that's appropriate for a given business line and for certain categories of customers. You want to get at the root causes of violations. Third, internal controls. You want to set clear expectations for employees. And then fourth, testing and auditing. And fifth, training. You want to tailor the training to employees, again, following the risk-based approach, who are in high-risk areas. So that really summarizes the program. I give more detail in my book. 
But my final comment is the firms and the super, their supervisors will include both AML and OFAC compliance systems often in a joint examination. So they look at them together. So I'd like to now turn to corporate governance and the role of corporate governance in the fight against money laundering and terrorist financing. And I'd also like to overlay one of the most ubiquitous terms of 2021 ESG. And because what I try to emphasize to people is those three letters you've been doing or you should have been doing them for a long time. You may not call it ESG, but corporate governance should have been right up top. But I really wanted to ask you specifically, what's the role of corporate governance in this fight? So, as you know, I'd like to talk about the fundamentals of that. So let me kind of build up to that. First of all, to put it in context, at least for now, Anglo-American companies foul shareholder supremacy. So maximize shareholder welfare. That's your number one objective. And corporate governance systems are designed to protect franchise value with that objective in mind. So they cover all the material risks. And the, as I said before, these risks arise often from conflicts of interest. And that can cause you know, employees to violate internal policies and procedures, as well as external rules and regulations. That's where you get into what is called compliance risk. And AML and terrorist financing risk is a big compliance risk because you can get in trouble with the feds. So a corporate governance system seeks to achieve the aim of protecting, enhancing the firm's franchise value in many ways. Of course, I'm not going to get into it here, but a couple of examples, you know, the board providing necessary resources for AML compliance. I give examples in the book where that wasn't the case appointing experienced heads of AML compliance, the board ensuring necessary internal controls were established and over having an oversight role of risk management. And just in general, and I covered this in my first book, and I talked about it in the AML book, the rise of the risk-based approach in AML reflects a general evolution in financial regulation that frankly incorporates firms' corporate governance systems actually within a regulatory framework. Now, let me move down a level or two in the corporation and ask the same question, but in the context of risk management. So what's the role of risk management in the fight against money laundering and terrorist financing, as opposed to perhaps board oversight or corporate governance? Or do you see it as really the continuum of corporate governance? It's a central component of corporate governance, especially after the financial crisis. So the banking regulators have been way ahead of this. They've established guidelines, guidance for risk management for depository institutions. But I will say the risk management function should be especially for conglomerates, firm-wide and enterprise level. Without that, you really couldn't have an effective risk-based approach in AML. It just couldn't be implemented. So you need to fit it into the corporate governance framework, which in turn makes sure that the risk management function is effective for these purposes. So just to get a little bit like a professor here, I'll just mention some of the basics of risk management. You know, the board approves a risk appetite, and then you have a risk assessment of the business lines. For AML, you want to produce, create customer risk profiles. You categorize the risk level of each category of you know, customers for transaction, suspicious transaction monitoring and sanction screening purposes. 
And finally, you have to do ongoing assessments, your business changes and various other events. So you have to keep at this all the time. And I'll just briefly I mention very important part of risk management is the three lines of defense. It plays a critical role in risk management. And the business line is the first line. Compliance risk management is the second line and internal audit is the third line. The last two uh, doing the oversight function. But I would say that risk management is only as good as its weakest link, and that's the business line, the business executives. They have to be on the same page as risk management, or else, you know, you're going to have real big problems with compliance risk. I only point to the one MDB scandal, the Goldman Sachs scandal, as an example. So the first line of defense sets a tone at the top. That's very critical. So I'd like to ask now, what is a risk-based approach to suspicious transactions and, and sanctions monitoring? But I'd maybe like to broaden that a little bit by asking, is that one part of an overall effective AML compliance program? Because do you have to perform background due diligence? Do you have to understand KYC? Do you have to understand who the people are and the business they're in? Or can you look at risk a risk-based approach solely around suspicious transactions and sanction screening? No, I would look at it in a holistic context. Just by the way, I didn't actually finish with the last question. I, I should have mentioned it with ESG. Very important to involve those. Those are material risks. So you want to, and firms are increasingly embedding that into their risk management structure. But getting back to your question here, holistically, you know, my book, I talk about kind of a hierarchy of regulatory risk-based expectations. And so it begins with FATF, the standard setting, and it goes down to the national level where you have lawmaking. And then the third level is regulation of industry sectors. And then finally, what we're interested in is at the firm level, every firm's business model creates unique money laundering and financing of terrorism risk. So what does a firm have to do? It identifies, and this is standard risk management, uh, but it's part of this, our, this risk-based approach. Identify and assess money laundering and terrorist financing risk. And then you have to put in controls to mitigate these risks uh, with po appropriate policies and procedures and controls. The important thing, both for the regulators and law enforcement authorities, is they want a really useful suspicious activity report, the outcome of this whole process. It also helps the firm to allocate its resources most effectively. It serves a corporate governance resource function, you know, saving resources for the greatest risk. And as I said, it's compliance risk. So we're going to focus on their most material money laundering and terrorist financing risks. The other thing I'll mention is these, especially the large institutions, they have millions of transactions. So how are they going to sort out what warrants further investigation? So the transaction monitoring system, the you know the alert system, it's really a costly infrastructure, but it's needed to sort out on a risk basis what is most material. So you know the, again to get to the outcome for law enforcement authorities. So how have these issues in your mind become more important I would say after COVID-19, but we're not after COVID-19. Perhaps 
we're at the end of the beginning of COVID-19. How do you see COVID-19 has made all of these issues really more important? That's a good question. I, I will focus on fraud because that is really the main risk that has emerged here in the COVID crisis. So COVID really accentuated fraudulent schemes. And as you may know, fraud is the biggest domestic source of money laundering in the U.S. Of course, you have drug smuggling from abroad, but it's really fraud domestically. And I mentioned that FinCEN put out an advisory in July of last year on cyber-enabled crime exploiting COVID. That was basically the title. So what did they do in that? They, they highlighted fraudulent schemes to exploit vulnerabilities created by the pandemic. They described COVID-related cyber schemes, scams, red flags, and actually SAR, a suspicious activity report, reporting mechanics relating to the specific issue. It also noted that COVID moved many people offline, as you know, everybody knows that massive movement online from actual in-person meetings. And that also created opportunities to exploit online platforms. Another thing they found a typology, they often, FinCEN puts out these advisories often on typologies. So criminals would undermine online identity verification using fraudulent documents by actually manipulating the digital images of legitimate government-issued IDs. Uh, they also leverage compromised credentials across customer accounts. And finally, they use phishing malware extortion to lure healthcare and pharma companies with offers of COVID-related information and supplies. Now, let me turn to that veiled land of the future and ask you to perhaps look down the road to 2025 or even beyond and where you might see both AML and sanctions compliance. Great question. You know, we haven't talked about it, but the 2020 Anti-Money Laundering Act, uh, you know, the recent legislation provides a very important infrastructure which emphasizes regtech innovation for, MA, for AI and machine learning. And I think that will begin to bear fruit as they get the rules issued as we approach 2025. But I have to note there's, there's cost caveats here. I was at an NYU conference in 2019 they had chief risk officers of the major banks on a panel. They all made the same point. Humans will always have to apply their judgment, even when you have very sophisticated AI compliant solutions. I also want to mention that there's model risk. The more you use AI and machine learning, it creates an additional risk, which is the risk that the model is written with errors. I kind of bring in my experience teaching in financial mathematics on model risk. There's a lot of guidance on that, but it's a very important topic, and particularly for the banks, because they are subject to uh, the special guidance of the Federal Reserve and the OCC. But just internally, you know, the firm itself, again, to protect its franchise value, this time against uh, model risk, you have to validate the data integrity the model's conceptual soundness and its output. And externally, the supervisors do the same thing. But that becomes very difficult because AI and machine learning often use internal processes that can be a black box, sort of impervious to validation by supervisors. So you have to be careful about that. So, Professor Dill, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time. But for those listening at home, I am now holding up a copy of Professor Dill's book, 
any money laundering regulation and compliance. And although you can't see it because this is an audio only podcast, I want you to envision it and envision it holding it like I am. So if someone wants to purchase your book, we're going to link to the purchase site in the show notes. But where can they go, Professor Dill? It's on Amazon. It's also on Elgar, Edward Elgar's publisher site. So, but you can find this information if you go to Financial Market Reg. That's one word, .com, financialmarketreg.com. That's my website. I have a lot of articles there and links to videos. I've also posted a video intro to the book on Amazon. So you can look at that. It, I just posted it this morning. So uh, they say they have to take a couple days, but I'm pretty sure it's so dry they'll you know, sign off on it. So that, that's where I would go. Well, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me and also for taking the time to uh, to write this book, I found it to be uh, very useful for me in terms of a very holistic approach to the regulations, but I'll say once again to the compliance community and the compliance component of this. So I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. Uh, thank you, Tom, and thanks again for inviting me. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.